Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Sarah Gullickson. She is CEO at the Cannabis Business Advisors. We're going to talk to her about the work that she's done in cannabis, what's going on in the cannabis industry. Obviously, you know, there's always changes in cannabis. We've got a couple of interesting things that have happened in the last few months in terms of some new states coming on. Obviously, a change in administration. We've got potentially, um, you know, hopefully some changing to bank laws, to legal status of cannabis federally, all sorts of things that might be coming down the pike here. I'm always curious to talk about some of these issues and what the future may hold with with folks that have been in cannabis for a while and kind of know how cannabis works and can understand kind of how these things might impact the industry and how it unfolds. And excited to just um, you know talk with folks that have been part of cannabis and, and have insights and stories and experience. So with that, Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Before we kind of dig into the topics that are going on today, let's get to know you a little bit in background. Give us a, a little bit of insight on your professional experience, your background, how you got involved in cannabis. You know, give us the story. All right, great. Where do I start? So I realized <laughs> yesterday that March marks 13 years in this industry. 
Wow. Yeah. And, and, a, and that's like dog years. So you're, you're coming up on like a century in cannabis. <laughs> oh my gosh. That, that makes me feel even older than I did yesterday. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I like to say that I was raised in the industry. So, I mean, I, I went to college. I also got my MBA. And then I had a small advertising agency for spas, salons, and kind of healthcare clients. Mm-hmm. And a cannabis organization reached out to me and I was always a fan of naturopathic medicine. That's basically what we used in our household growing up versus, you know, traditional medicine. And I guess Mm -hmm. I was young enough and had nothing to lose. Um, And so I got involved with that company and my job with that company was just to really raise awareness. There weren't cannabis consulting companies per se back then. Um, And we started in the industry. We had the world's largest hydroponic store that people could come into and um, ask questions about cannabis, which back Mm -hmm. then you couldn't. And so that was not really like my favorite part of the business. My favorite part of the business was licensing. So Arizona was actually giving away medical licenses. And people really didn't know how to submit all the paperwork because they didn't have an inventory control plan and they didn't have a cultivation plan. And so my ex-business partner actually came over from Oakland, which is obviously, you know, kind of one of the birthplaces of cannabis and had some of that material developed with attorneys. And I, you know, took the role on of sales, you know, sales and marketing obviously go hand in hand. And I educated people about our products and worked with a, a handful of people here in Arizona during the first round of licensing to help them secure licenses. Back then it was seasonal. So, you know, we'd be super excited if one or two states would have some track. in that year. So I kept my like marketing and advertising clients and other, you know, verticals as far as like healthcare and salon spa for, I would say three, four years into my career. And then by then I was kind of going state to state to state to help legislators put together their rules and regulations and to also help cannabis hopeful entrepreneurs put together their responses to the RFP or the RFA. So, I mean, that's really what I did for the first, I would say, eight years of my career, in addition to helping people get licensing and then helping them kind of open up their operations. And then back in 2018, I sold my first cannabis consulting company. Mm -hmm. Uh, By that time, I had taken interest in a handful of different licenses. So I think I have like seven or eight licenses now in different states. So North Dakota, Nevada, Ohio, and Michigan. And then I just actually applied for quite a few licenses here in Arizona for myself. So not only did we launch the firm back in June during the pandemic, it's it's a new firm, the Cannabis mm-hmm. Business Advisors, but it's really a version of kind of what we did before. We're very boutique but our real main goal is to help good people get licenses so that they can join the movement, they can join the industry, and do good work for patients. So, I mean, my, my goal in getting to this industry was, was silly. It was to make history. It wasn't to be rich. It wasn't to be famous. I just really yeah. wanted my children to be able to say, wow, you know, my mom was a powerful business person in a new and nascent industry. So that's kind of the long and the short of the last 13 years summed up in about five minutes. (laughs) Good work. (laughs) There's many more stories that we could play off of. Well, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure we'll cover many of them. So I'm curious, as you kind of originally got into cannabis, like, you know, working with many different industries, what was different? What was interesting? What was challenging about working with cannabis companies versus some of these other industries, other companies that you were working with in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, completely, (laughs) completely different. (laughs) 
Um, but I guess I, you know, I was young enough to not really have like a good understanding of what the real world looked like. You know, I was doing kind of like floofy marketing, social media and things like that for, you know, plastic surgeons, dentists. And, you know, while they have red tape and regulations and certain things that you can and can't say, you know, as I got involved in the cannabis industry, it was kind of an interesting progression because, you know, being 26, 27 years old and not really understanding like the business world or how to act or how to dress or all the things. And then you wind up in boardrooms with powerful people and decision makers. And back then the industry wasn't as sophisticated as it was today. And that's why I like to say that I did grow up in the industry and I grew up with the industry. Um, You know, 13 years ago, you know, we'd go to the biggest, you know, marijuana conferences and it'd be like, you know, 300 people like sitting and looking at each other in a room, like thinking the feds (laughs) were going to bust in or something. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know how other industries function as well because this is what I know. I mean, I have real estate investments and now I'm confident and obviously under my understanding of business and my business dealings that I feel like, you know, obviously I could have a voice in other business conversations in other industries, but it was definitely like a natural progression that happened with time. And I think that, you know, my opportunity in the industry was awesome because of luck and because of timing and because of all the things because, you know, if had I dabbled in a different industry and then landed in this industry, you know, it probably wouldn't have gone the way that it went. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as I'm curious on the um, kind of policy making side, like as you got involved with some of these states that were crafting policy and, you know, working with the legislatures and, and the people that were looking to kind of structure how a state was going to handle this and kind of the rules and regulations, like, I guess, how did that come about and how did you kind of approach that as, you know, kind of operating on the business side, how did you feel you affected or what was your role in helping policymakers make sure that they were creating, um, you know, a viable, you know, industry for their state that was going to work well? Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes we would get called in and sometimes, you know, the legislators would do a Google search, figure out who the consultants were, and then they would call us in and say, hey, you know, what do you think of these ideas? So I was actually lucky enough to do that in New York. And it was a really amazing experience just because obviously New York is New York, you know, and it's, you know, the Mecca of the United States. So that was an interesting just conversation of, you know, hey, what do you think of this concept and how do you, how would you feel about this? And then in other states, you know, they would draft the the programming and I would, you know, go through it and read it and I would, you know, hop on a flight and fly out for, you know, their hearings and ensure that there if there were topics that we felt were detrimental to the actual program, we would have our, our, our voice heard. A specific example of that was Arkansas was going to do a lottery-based system. Mm-hmm. And any time I can get involved to prohibit a lottery-based system, I do. Um, I really believe in the credentialing and the merit-based application processes for something like this. I think that there's an extreme amount of money that passes through the industry. And I really feel that that needs to go into the right people's hands that are in the industry for, you know, the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And so every state is is wired so differently. Um, and I just always kind of took a proactive approach where, you know, if the programming wasn't out, we'd lobby to get, you know, something started and just really kind of make our voice known that we were there to help. So these aren't like paid contracts. The government usually doesn't like to pay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was for 
you know, the, the program and it was for the people and it was for the entrepreneurs that we would then guide through. And if we were sat at the table to help make, you know, the programming and help, you know, establish what that looked like, we could obviously do a better job helping people secure those licenses. Yeah. I'm curious as you've worked with these different states and seen the industry involved, you know, you mentioned the lottery system. What other things have you found that has helped or or policies, systems that haven't helped so much? What what's kind of your take on kind of the the constellation of approaches and, and policies that states have used and what do you generally generally recommend to states now? It's interesting because the states kind of stick with their region. So what they'll do is they'll, you know, if if Pennsylvania goes, then a state near Pennsylvania will study their rules and regulations and then they'll kind of like then edit it a small bit. And so (laughs) if you study the programming throughout the regions, you'll find a lot of similarities, which is very interesting because the great thing about not being federally legal is that every single state gets to say, this is what will work for our state and our environment. And having worked in 20 some odd states, it is very interesting. And I always used my marketing background in helping people put together their request for proposal or request for application because we always like hyper localize the plan. So not only did we worry about like the state level, we would also worry about the municipality level. And when you're putting together community benefits and diversity plans and environmental plans, you know, a lot of the consultants out there, they take this copy and paste approach. And we really like to like go to the state, go to the city, really understand how it functions, understand how it felt so that we could put together the best RFP or RFA. And I think that that's really interesting. And I think that that will be some of the key ingredients to help these states be successful is studying what other states have done, studying what other states, what has worked and studying what hasn't worked. Um, You know, a specific example of that is Arizona, you know, is an old program. It's almost like 12, 13 years old. And, you know, we're Wild West and our licenses are valued like top, top dollar. And it's because they're vertically integrated. And we've seen since the progression of the industry that not only have the states kind of segregated or separated the licenses, you know, you can now apply for just a dispensary or just a cultivation or just a processing. And so I think that that was a very good natural progression just because if you're good at retail, it doesn't mean you're good at agriculture. Yeah, I I certainly have found like in the beginning – just from a control and consistency point of view, like the integrated licenses and integrated business made sense so that you you knew what you were putting on the shelves because you grew it and processed it and you you kind of had control over it the whole chain. But as these industries have kind of matured and you know the the networks were there, you know professionals came into these different areas, people could specialize. I mean, do you see that as being kind of the progression of the cannabis industry that there'll continue to be kind of people specializing in different parts and then the networks will begin to kind of develop and integrate and the systems will be there and standards and stuff will will begin to formulate. Yeah, absolutely. And and the really cool part of kind of separating the licenses is it allows for more people to get in. You know, the amount of capital that it takes to set up, you know, a small dispensary is not, you know, crazy. When you're talking about putting a vertical operation together, you're, te- you're 10 mil deep. Oh, yeah. So not only will people specialize, but more people will be able to join the party, so to speak, which I think is a really interesting conversation that we're having in the industry now and probably for the last you know five years where diversity matters and inclusion matters and um, you know we're able to kind of bring people into the industry that maybe 
couldn't eight years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. Have you seen any of you know the equity, diversity, inclusion programs uh, by the states that have worked particularly well, that haven't worked? I mean, I, there's, I know there's a lot of talk, and they're quite different. Um, and I'm curious, I guess, what, what's working, what's not working? Where are we with some of these programs? So diversity in the industry is kind of like an older conversation. So we've been doing diversity plans, I would say, probably for like the last eight years. So it's like, you know, if you're a woman-owned business or if you're, you know, obviously of a different background and, and things like that. So that's always been important. And it's not only from like the leadership and the owners of the business, but how you can include a diverse staff. And then also diverse contractors, so your builders and things like that that are coming in to like stand up your operation. So that's kind of an older conversation. And then now the newer conversation is social equity and how do we get the people involved that have been, you know, wronged by, you know, cannabis and and decriminalization and, and all of that. So that's a really interesting topic. We're gearing up to, you know, put some projects together here in Arizona for social equity, but they're, it's not established yet. So we don't know who qualifies yet. And we don't know who, you know, we don't know who we can kind of like push into that program. So this is going to be like my first go round at making, you know, a a mark on this type of a program. Um, I had a non-compete for a while after I sold mm-hmm. my company. Yeah, I'm sure. And so I, I did. I haven't partaken in 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 one yet. So that's like it's a it's new territory to me, to be honest. Yeah, I, you know, I'm curious. Just um, uh, you know, as as a, a woman in the industry, what have been some of your kind of experiences that you think, you know, kind of relate to your being a woman, relate to the industry. I'm, you know, kind of curious what you have observed, what has been kind of your experiences having been in cannabis for so long now? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting conversation. Um, it's it's Women's History Month. And so I did a, a <laughs> webinar last week with a group of women and you know, I've worked really hard to get to where I am today. And so I kind of have a hard time with the conversation because I try not to use being a woman as something that's a setback. And I try to teach other women to use it to their advantage and not look yeah. at it as a setback. So at a really early age, you know, 99.9% of our clients are men. I mean, that's just the world that I, I live in. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of high profile people and very powerful personalities. And I remember one of my first trips to Illinois to like, you know, try and secure some clients when, when, things were going in Illinois on a medical level years and years ago, I would sit in meetings and I, you know, didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have everything figured out yet. And, you know, sometimes I didn't have enough money to fly home. So I'd have to put it on a credit card because I was unsuccessful. And so I started to study, you know, seat placement and, and where to sit and how to control the meeting. And, I, I, you know, went for the next trip and didn't let myself get discouraged being a woman and being young too. I mean, I was yeah. under 30 mm-hmm. with these powerful people. And it was funny because they wanted to date me. And I'm like, no, I don't want to date. I, <laughs> I want to I do business with you. And it's like, you know, hey, we're going to the club later. Do you want to have dinner? And so it was really early on in my career that I drew a hard line in the sand and it was like, don't ever go to dinner one-on-one with a man um, Mm -hmm. because you don't want to give them the right or the wrong idea. (laughs) Not right. And then, you know, when I would sit down at the table, I would make myself the head of the table. I would tell them where to sit. I would tell them how the meeting would go. I would not let them interrupt me. I would save the last Mm -hmm. 10 minutes for questions. And I just figured out how to operate in the environment that, you know, I selected instead of saying, oh, I'm a woman. Nobody wants to do business with me. 
me. Yeah. And so I think that that has, has created kind of the persona that I've carried in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm a Midwest girl. I was, you know, somewhat creative and I wasn't really super direct or, you know, I didn't have like necessarily this loud voice. And if I wanted to be in this space, if I wanted to have a seat at the table and if I wanted to do all the things that I wanted to do, I had to find that voice. And so I found it. You know, I, I know that men treat me differently or some men treat me differently being in the industry and that's fine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to do business with them. It's, 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 you know, just kind of at the end of the day, you're also interviewing the client. And we yeah. only need to take 10, 15 clients a year to make, you know, really great successful yeah. projects. So, you know, you just kind of pivot and, and figure out like your way of doing business. And, you know, most people I would say have a high, high level of respect for me um, yeah. because, because I demand it. Yeah. And the people that don't, you know, they don't get a second meeting or a phone call. And, you know, I've, I've been in meetings before where there was, you know, complete disregard or disrespect. And I've called the meeting and I said, you know what? Hey, I don't think this is going to be yeah. a, a good working relationship. And so for me, I always just want to empower other women to find their voice and to stand up and take their seat at the table because nobody's going to give it to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like some of this is kind of learning how to play the game and kind of learning how to play the game like like a man would in some of these areas. I mean, do you feel like there's some you know sensibility, kind of different approach, perspective you have as a, a woman now in the cannabis space that you know gives you you know interesting kind of angle on things or you know I, as as you've you know, worked with other women in this space, what do you think the difference is for being a woman leader in cannabis now for, you know, t- 10 years now in the in the space? Yeah. So, I mean, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh-huh. It's very yeah. true. It exists. And I really think that there should be a seat at the table for all different backgrounds, men, yeah. women, different races, just because we all have such different perspectives and that can be a very beautiful thing. You know, we can bring certain things to the table that men can't. And, and I think that that's a good fit. You know, with our RFPs, you know, I used to design our RFPs so that they had logos and people would be like, why are you putting logos and, you know, <laughs> doing, you know, marketing and branding for a company that may or may not exist in six months? And I'm like, listen, if you were the person that was grading this, and you were reading through 23 or 500 mm-hmm. inventory control plans, wouldn't you want something with a little style? Wouldn't you want something with a little grace? Yeah. And I really believe that that was part of my success with how we did the RFPs. I will never, ever say that I was the smartest or I was the best <laughs> at technical writing, but I could speak to the graders that were going through these things yeah. and probably bored out of their mind yeah. to create some sort of an interesting theme or to create something that looked attractive. You know, and I feel like I've always brought brought that aspect to business where it's like everybody brought that aspect to business where it's like everybody's doing it like this. How how can we make some noise? And I, I've loved being very disruptive to the industry. And a lot of times, you know, people have said, well, you're, you're before your time. Like the industry is not ready for this. And then guess what? Two years, three years later, somebody else is doing it. Yeah. And what, I guess what's your take right now in, in cannabis in terms of, you know, some of these new states that are coming online? I mean, how we've, you know, we've had some of these states now have been in play for a while. Um, you know, we had a couple of states pass legislation this last election cycle, you know, hopefully coming online in the next couple of months here. Where do you see, what are some of the big trends or what do you see as being kind of interesting as these new states come in? What do you notice? I mean, progression. So progression is great. Whether a state's going from dry to medical or medical to recreational, it's all progression, right? So this year was supposed to be the biggest year cannabis has ever seen. And that's true every year, right? Um, just because it's 
growing so much faster. But with the pandemic, you know, there were supposed to be 11 states for that had ballot initiatives and only five made it. You know, New York was supposed to be, you know, huge for us. And um, the governor said, hey, you know, with everything going on, we can't, you know, collect signatures and do what we need to do on this thing. But funny enough, it's getting picked up this year. So, yeah. I mean, there's so many opportunities in cannabis and that's through licensing and it's all through, also through ancillary businesses. So, you know, I've gone on the road with Tony Robbins and done some really interesting, fun shows, you know, to for people that maybe don't have $2 million to try and get into the industry. And I just, you know, I always ask the question of like, what are you good at? Are you good at marketing? Are you good at security? Are you a CPA? And how can you take those skills and translate those skills into the cannabis industry because there's so many opportunities. And quite frankly, the industry is growing at a such a rapid rate that we need talent. We need people that are smart. We need people that are sophisticated, not only to set up the licensing, but to then support the businesses as they you know move on to be operational. So mm-hmm. I mean, this year is super exciting. It was fun, you know, having having my son and taking a little bit of time off for my non-compete. Um, but we're super ready to pound the pavement. There's so many great opportunities. We're working right now with uh, opening, you know, some facilities in West Virginia for clients that had secured licenses. We're also working in Missouri for the same type of a situation. Uh, New Jersey is obviously um, almost ready to kind of uh, fly in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, things are getting ready over there. We're representing a couple of clients already. Mississippi is another one that's on the radar. We're working with a really exciting and interesting gentleman there that I can't wait to kind of bring to the media once the the process is all done, um, just because it's a really cool story. So, I mean, there's so many different opportunities. It's whether you can get into the industry that already exists or to help shape some of the programs that are progressing from dry to medical or medical to recreational. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's interesting stuff. And and on the policy side, I mean, I you know, there's chatter around, you know, with the new administration, we might be closer to seeing, you know, federal legalization of cannabis, and, or at least maybe some of these changes to some of the tax issues and banking issues and stuff. I mean, what's, what are the things you're looking at or kind of watching from a federal policy point of view and, and why and what do you think, you know, what do you think the impacts are going to be or how this is going to shape the industry? I mean, honestly, I'm not a big fan of legalizing on a federal level. I think that I always use California as an example. So California went from municipality ran to then state ran. And California had a huge industry before the state got involved. And I definitely respect the fact that the state needed to get involved to make sure that we had like legitimate businesses that were operating. And then also that the state needed to, you know, collect tax dollars. Mm -hmm. But the transition from going from a municipality ran conversation to a state ran program, it was very clumsy and it put a lot of people out of business. And the 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 rules and regulations when they're stacked upon each other typically don't work. So for me, I would like to say see movement in, you know, 280E. I would like to say movement in banking, meaning that we can have bank accounts. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my bank accounts Jeez. have been shut down and I don't even have plant yeah. touching bank accounts. Yeah, exactly. And then decriminalization is also another conversation that I think is interesting on on a federal level. But I would really hope that they didn't put together or try to put together programming that would sit on top of all the state's programming and really respect, you know, the industry that's evolved in each state because they're all so unique and they're a lot of them are running beautifully. So mm-hmm. at that point it's like let's not, you know, mess with it. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't up the cup, apple cart that's that's doing reasonably well. Yeah. 
Um, and if I give you a magic wand to change anything about the cannabis space right now, like what, what would it be? Why would you change it? How do you think it would help things? You know, I, I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I've been around a really long time and like you mentioned earlier, it's dog years. Like we are progressing so fast and it's so interesting. And like the speed that it's progressing is great. You know, there's obviously conversations that are, you know, developing that are, you know, about diversity and social equity and decriminalization and kind of like the feel good part of the industry. And then there are other conversations about, you know, you know, companies going public and, you know, what the financial implications are and what the impact is and, you know, how much revenue can these states collect while we potentially could be going into somewhat of an economic downturn. And I, I really have appreciated my time in the industry. And I'm kind of one of those people that, you know, of course, I want to lobby for change. But I really, I really think the cannabis industry has done a good job. I do. I mean, it's not been perfect. But I, I, I really stand by our work that we've done. And I think everybody's done the best job that they could with the ingredients and tools that we had. Yeah. And and who are you typically working with these days? How are you helping them? What is what does your business look like? We we keep boutique. So we select, you know, 10, 15 clients a year that we're gonna help win licenses. And then when they are successful in winning licenses, we'll traditionally stay on board to help them open. So that's kind of my business model. It's always been my business model. And then I take equity in a lot of the projects we work on, especially with some of the entrepreneurs that we meet and and think that they'll be like a good personality fit. And so then, you know, the firm works on kind of some of my projects too. I'm really, really crossing my fingers and toes for Arizona. Um, (laughs) We submitted quite a few licenses and you know it was it was the biggest check that I've had to write because uh-huh. um, typically I'm, I'm playing with other people's money but I was happy uh-huh. to do it in my own in my home state <laughs> but I you know I'm, I'm very hopeful that the lottery um, ends up kind of turning out in our favor yeah yeah I'm excited for you um this has been a pleasure Sarah if people want to find out more about you about the work that you do but what is the best place to get that information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the CannabisBusinessAdvisors.com is the business um, website. And then my personal website is just SarahGullickson.com. And you can reach out to me on either of those platforms. And I'd be more than happy to chat um, about the industry or how to get started in the industry or even help people that are already in the industry that maybe need some new ideas to you know sharpen their tools. Excellent. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes here so people can get that. Sarah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.